This paper is called Remaking the Dead, Uncertainty and the Talk of Human Materials. And as Laura said, it's part of a, a larger project I've been involved in, looking at the politics of the dead in Zimbabwe, which itself is part of this Bones Collective Research Group. Now, I think of this paper as the third in a trilogy of papers I've been writing on this. And in, in fact, the first paper, I, I gave it here in Oxford a few years ago, when I first began on this sort of, on this project. I don't use the word journey, far too cliché. And so I think of this as the third paper, but also increasingly I've now realised that really there's a book here, and now I'm increasingly thinking of this paper as the sort of the central chapter of a five-chapter book. And that book, I hope, it's not the book that I'm currently writing, it's another book, and I'm thinking of calling that The Politics of the Dead and the Power of Uncertainty, Rumours, Materiality and Human Remains in post-2000 Zimbabwe. And the, the reason I mention it is really because I think it's important that this chapter is the central chapter because it turns. It turns from looking at the materialities of human remains to looking at the political efficacy of rumours and how those two are linked. And that's really where this chapter is and hopefully uh, it will become clear why I think that. Um, okay, so my subject of this particular paper is these massive war veteran-led exhumations that burst onto the Zimbabwean public scene in March 2011, and these are photographs from it. I should warn you now that there are a few unpleasant photographs of the ilk that you see here throughout this, but there aren't too many, and I'm also going to show a short video clip. So the structure, so you can keep follow me as we go along, that's the structure of the paper, so if you kind of fall asleep and wake up, you know where we are. Okay. Right, so my introduction. So in March 2011, amid a lot of massive publicity, um, a group of war veterans known as the Fallen Heroes Trust began exhuming hundreds of human remains from a disused mine in northern Zimbabwe known as Chibondo. They were claiming that these were victims of Rhodesian atrocities during the liberation struggle which ended in 1980. Immediately, the ZANU-PF-aligned media, press and TV uh, surrounded these exhumations in a huge amount of publicity. So there were video clips, there was media footage and everything else going on. And these exhumations and the crude politicking going on around them immediately provoked an enormous controversy. Uh, and this controversy took place to a large extent in the pages of the state and the independent media. Now, what I'm arguing in this paper, what I want to argue, is that these controversies turned on and were animated by the indeterminate qualities of the human materials and the uncertainties that this provoked about the identity and age of the dead and the manner of their deaths. Because what I'm going to argue is this, in, this indeterminate nature of the human remains raised all sorts of very difficult questions about, in fact, whether all of these remains really were victims of Rhodesian atrocities during the liberation struggle, or whether they included much more recent dead. And I'm going to work towards the argument that possibly the grotesque displays of these uncertain dead also were part of ZANU-PF's stylistics of power in another way. In other words, they were not just part of ZANU-PF's uh, necropolitan, as one person has put it, imagination, or their aesthetics of heroism, but also there was something else going on. So my purpose is, how are these questions about the identity of the dead and the manner of their deaths and who has sovereignty over them 
provoked by the excessive potentialities of the human substances being assumed. How are these indeterminate human materials being remade imperfectly and contingently into particular types of political bodies or subjects? How did these materials themselves demand and enable and yet ultimately defy this very reconstitution of the dead? And what might be the political usefulness of the uncertainties provoked by this excessive potentiality of human materials? And what I'm going to suggest is that Zanipiev, the usefulness came that Zanipiev could both celebrate their liberation heroes and at the same time remind people of their own capacities for violence. But ultimately, I'm also going to argue that these uncontained uncertainties were unsustainable. And indeed, by August of 2011, all the exhumed remains had been reburied in a new grave at the site, the mine was sealed and it disappeared from the sort of media and everything just closed down. Okay, so that's my paper in its condensed form. If you're very busy, this would be the moment to say, okay, I've heard that. Um, let me now give you the longer, more detailed version. And I, we need to do a bit of background here because I think in, in recent years, there definitely has been, both in scholarly circles and more broadly, a renewed interest in human corporeality. Okay? Certainly in, since the 90s, when memory became a big issue of, of scholarly research, since then there's been this renewed attention to the complex entanglement of the politics of the past with, with that of its material remains, performative practices, monumentalization, and so on. And part of this broader process has been this renewed focus on human corporeality, or what Florence Bernot has called carnal fetishism. And we could ask, is this a return to much older questions first asked by Hertz? in his classic work on death. Now, there's a central problem which I haven't quite resolved yet, which is, does this renewed interest in corporeality actually reflect broader, shall we say, cultural changes? And we can think of, for example, the popularity of forensic science on television programmes, CSI, or, in fact, we can think of what's been going on in Leicester in a car park recently. Right. On the other hand, is this new interest in corporeality in, in the social sciences actually the result of new theoretical concerns? Certainly in anthropology, through the 90s, we had the concern with embodiment, and then in the noughties, this turned into questions of materiality. Now, actually, having thought about this only a little bit and still leaving it open, it's probably a bit of both. Either way, there is definitely a new zeitgeist of interest into how the politics of memory, corporeality and materiality are linked. And this is both across the region, the Southern African region, but also far beyond. And in Zimbabwe in particular, while the politics of the past and of its remains has long been a salient issue, I think in the last decade or so, we can definitely identify a kind of heightened politics of the dead. So let me talk a little bit about that, about the Zimbabwean context. So, the politics of the dead has been an issue in Zimbabwe at least since independence. And there are three or three different sort of aspects of this. Firstly, there are these long-standing complaints about ZANU-PF, the former ruling party, about their very partisan and elitist control of national commemoration of the liberation struggle. And this goes right back to the 1980s. And so this is really uh, these complaints about ZANU-PF's exclusion of other nationalist histories and the contributions of other nationalist individuals and parties, particularly ZAPU and ZIPRA. And of course, more recently, since 2000, ZANU-PF has developed this new political rhetoric, this, uh, what Terence Ranger has called patriotic history, as through which 
Sanipef arrogates exclusively to itself the liberation credentials and languages of suffering through which it constantly marginalizes opposition political groups. In other words, we liberated the country, you didn't. Right? So that's one aspect of it. The second aspect is that is sort of more on the ground, if you like. There have been these continuing complaints about the failures of state commemoration. And certainly in the last 10 years, and even before, there have been increasing calls from family members, from war veterans and local communities for the return and reburial of war dead. Um, and, and war dead buried both in mass graves around the country, but also in Mozambique, in Zambia, and in other neighboring countries. And indeed, we, if we look closely over the last 10 years, you'll see that there have been increasing cases of war veterans, spirit mediums, and families actually doing their own exhumations. They know where someone's buried, they just go ahead and do it. And at the same time, there have been all these cases of human remains just being found or being dug up or ploughed up just almost by themselves from unknown mass graves. So there are often reports of farmers who you know, plough up, plow up human remains and so on. It's not uncommon. And at the same time, there are these cases of the unsettled dead returning themselves as Ngozi spirits, haunting relatives, comrades, and indeed, we could say more broadly, Zimbabwe's post-colonial milieu. So spirit mediums I've talked to often say, you know, the reason this, we have these droughts, the reason there are these political problems or economic collapse or even AIDS is because of these unhappy war dead that want to be returned. Now, all of these complaints have fed into Zimbabwe, uh, national museums, which um, their liberation heritage project, and that really was the subject of the paper I gave here a few years ago. Now, this liberation heritage project is interesting because at one level it's a response to ZANU-PF's uh, patriotic history. At the same time, it clearly fits in with the kind of UNESCO SADC-wide agenda promoting liberation heritage across the region. And thirdly, it also seems to be a response to these ground-up uh, desires or demands to return the dead. So that's the sort of second aspect, the failures of state commemoration. And the third aspect of this long politics of the dead really is about legacies of post-colonial violence. And there are two aspects to this. Firstly, the highly sensitive and in, in fact increasingly politicised and unresolved issue of the Kukuhundi killings in the 1980s when tens of thousands of people in Matabeliland and the Midlands were killed by army units close to ZANU-PF. Now, ever since then, uh, the demands for the 90s things went very quiet, but in the last few years, demands for dealing with the Kukuhundi issue have grown exponentially. It's a huge issue. But the ZANU-PF government, when it was still a single government, and even now in the, in the government of national unity, continues to obstruct any form of Kukuhundi commemoration, any kind of efforts to exhume these bodies. So this is a really big issue. And, of course, the second aspect of the kind of post-colonial violence is the violence that's been escalating in the last 10 years or so since the 2000s, and particularly the elections of 2008, when hundreds of people were killed, thousands of people were brutalised, and many, many people disappeared. So the politics of the dead, then, is not just about resurfacing bones or unsettled spirits from past violence, but it's also about tortured bodies of recent election violence, and indeed the new politics of burial that accompanied it. And that really was the subject of the second of my three papers, if you like. So, the politics of the dead long predates the grisly events at Chibondo in March 2011. And it's deeply animated by these resurfacing bones of post-colonial and post-past colonial and post-colonial violence. And of course, 
the leaky, tortured bodies of much more recent violence, and of course, thirdly, by the spirits of the dead, as these avenging Ngozi spirits demanding to be returned home. And of course, the point here is that the haunting presence of such frightening spirits is intimately intertwined with the affective presence and emotive materiality of bones, bodies and human substances. And they are linked by the way in which they reveal or manifest the transgression of normalising processes whereby people, living and dead, are constituted, transformed and made safely dead. And this is important because this is why exhumations and reburials are seen often as a form of healing, right? a way of correcting such transgressions, a way of making people safely dead. And yet, even when there is this general agreement about the cathartic or healing potential of exhumations and reburials, these processes often remain unusually problematic and very contested, as indeed is, we can see even in Leicester right now. Right? So let me now move on to the video. But let me quickly say, these pictures are all from the Herald website, which is the ZANU-PF-aligned uh, newspaper and, and I think they're still there there's a whole photo essay there okay? and they're useful just for that fact alone but also because they kind of illustrate not only what was going on but how it was going on right? and you can see that thousands of people were being bused to this site in March, April and May of 2011 and there was a lot of ZANU-PF sloganeering going on okay, so these Chibondo exhumations immediately provoked huge controversies and in many ways these controversies reflected the topography of the politics of the dead that I've just been discussing. So initially the first kind of wave of complaints were really focusing on the kind of ZANU propaganda aspect of this. You know, why are they, you know, why are they using these exhumations for ZANU-PF propaganda? You know, and they're referring here to the sort of endless TV coverage, the ZANU-PF sloganeering, the bus tours, and so on and so forth. And people were saying, you know, this is gross politicization, ZANU-PF is just whipping up emotions for forthcoming elections, which haven't happened yet, but were certainly being discussed then. And of course people were asking, well, why are you doing this now? You know, didn't you know about this 20 years ago and so on? And in fact, rumours I've heard, um, and you can ask me about that later maybe, are that they really did know about this in the 1980s. Yeah. Um, but anyway... So these kinds of complaints uh, focused on this kind of politicization and focused on, and these linked to the kind of complaints about the partisan nature of ZANU-PF-led state commemoration. Now the second sort of group of initial complaints therefore focused immediately on the demands that other people were making for other exhumations of other dead elsewhere. So all the people who felt that they, their dead, their liberation stories and their dead had never been commemorated immediately said, well, if you're going to dig up ZANU-PF bodies and your heroes, we want to dig up our bodies. So former members of ZAPU, which is reformed, and former ZIPRA, the military wing of ZAPU, they immediately demanded their own exhumations. And for them, this was a particularly sore point, because the year before... Um, ZAPU had gone through all the motions of doing an exhumation of a grave site of a busload of comrades, Zipra comrades who'd been killed at the turn of independence. And everything was in place, and the last minute the government had said no. So for them, this was, uh, they were particularly uh, upset about this. And of course, very quickly, this then was accompanied by calls for the Kukuhundi dead too to be exhumed. Um, 
particularly because the Kukuhundi dead, perhaps much more so even than the Zapu dead, had been ignored for so long. And indeed, as one human rights activist in Matalat told me, you know, for, for many Ndebele activists, Kukuhundi activists, the whole Chibondo thing was a reminder that the dead are not equal. And Dabengwa, who was a politician in ZANU-PF, but actually he was in ZAPU, he joined ZANU-PF, and now he reformed ZAPU, he said, quote, ZANU-PF should extend the program to victims of the Kukuhundi to prove its sincerity. And of course, at the same time, similar kinds of questions were being asked about much more recent dead, MDC dead, uh, people who've been killed and disappeared in the last decade. And then, thirdly, Concern started to be raised about the manner of the exhumations. And this was coming initially particularly from human rights activists, but also was picked up by politicians. And these kinds of critiques focused on the very crude and unsophisticated uh, exhumations and the notable absence of any pathologists, any forensic archaeologists or anthropologists. And many uh, of these kinds of complaints emphasized that this, these kind of decidedly unforensic exhumations were disrespectful of the dead. So Sherry Eppel, who's a very prominent human rights activist in Matabeliland, um, who actually has been involved in exhumations of the Kukuhundi period in the late 90s, when there was a brief window of opportunity for them, uh, before those were cl closed down, she responded with, with an article called The Silencing of the Bones, uh, which was published very quickly after these events emerged, uh, emphasizing that really only forensic expertise could allow the bones to speak. And if I just show you the next slide, in a later report the same month, she works for the Solidarity Peace Trust, and they put out these monthly reports. And at the end of that, she put a section on uh, the Chibondo uh, exhumations and complaining about them. And in this, she juxtaposed these positions of exhumations that she'd been involved in, which were led by forensic scientists from Argentina, and compared it to uh, the exhumations going on in uh, Chibondo by the war veterans. And that, you, know, you get to see what her point is. Um, of course, the Fallen Heroes Trust and the war veterans involved, they responded by saying, we do not need forensic scientists. Right? We use African practices to identify the dead, and particularly we use spirit mediumship, forms of divination. Now, although not that many people were aware of this, actually, it's not totally untrue. They have been doing this for almost 10 years, and there are news reports of the Fallen Heroes Trust doing similar excavations 10 years ago involving spirit mediums. So it's not actually something that they just created. There is, they have been doing this for quite a long time. Um, but it, it, in, in responding to the criti criticisms about the manner in which they were doing this and, and emphasizing their African practices, they also stressed very much how their sort of practices offered the resolution of suffering for families, but also for the dead themselves. And of course, they constantly emphasized the horrors of the Rhodesian atrocities which their exhumations were uncovering. So they were talking about, uh, you know, we found evidence that people were buried alive, we found evidence, we found live grenades, they were using acids to destroy bodies, and so on and so forth. The government responded differently because at one level, ZANU-PF and the media continued its politicking, it continued its rhetoric. However, clearly some people in ZANU-PF recognized quite clearly that they needed to legitimize the exhumations. And as a result, in April, I think, uh, national museums were drafted in. 
National Museums who've been doing liberation heritage stuff, they were sent in to take over from the war veterans. And indeed, within a few months, the exhumations, as I said, were closed down and the mine was sealed. Uh, there is evidence that some people in ZANU-PF very strongly disagreed with this. So I've heard rumours about the vice president kind of have kind of being very angry in a cabinet meeting saying these war veterans, what they're doing is terrible. So we shouldn't assume that ZANU-PF were all agreed on what was going on. Anyway, very quickly, if those were the first uh, kinds of criticisms, very quickly much more serious uh, questions were being asked. And ironically, the questions that were the, the more serious questions were actually a result of the politicking that was going on. Because the images of what was going on were being broadcast everywhere, suddenly people being taken there, people seeing this on television, started saying, well, hang on, these remains look too fresh. They look too intact. They're too fleshy, too leaky. They're too stinky. How can they possibly date back 30 years to the liberation struggle? So this report from The Standard. Journalists who witnessed the exercise were shocked to see, see bodies that were still intact. One of the bodies still had visible hair, while others had their clothes intact. Other, another had fluids dripping from it, and a strong stench permeates the mine shaft. And an unidentified pathologist was quoted as saying, there's no way there could still be a stench three decades after the bodies were allegedly dumped. Ordinarily, there would only be bones. Now, it's interesting to note that it's not just the human remains which provoked this profound uncertainty. It was also the objects and the artefacts associated with them, particularly the shoes, the clothes, and the uniforms. So, Ambuya Vazarira, she's a spirit medium who I've worked with for many years in the south of Mashwingo, south of Zimbabwe, in Mashwingo. She told me in December that year that she'd been bused to Chibondo by her local ZANU-PF MP. And she said, quote, I was shocked that some of these bodies were still wearing their clothes. Is it possible that bodies would still be wearing clothes after 30 years? There are also rumours that cell phones had been found amongst the remains, that there were plastic ID cards, which were only introduced fairly recently, Zimbabwe National Army tags, and so on. What's even more interesting is that the Fallen Heroes Trust and the war veterans responded, and they dis obviously they dis dismissed these claims that these were fresh bodies, and they said this was mischievous, and so on. But in making their own counterclaims, they also pointed to the clothes and the artefacts to support their arguments that these were dead from the Liberation War. And particularly the canvas pro, super pro canvas shoes became really important because every, it was well known that uh, guerrilla fighters often wore these and so the war veterans were showing them, saying, look. But there are also a lot of references to uniforms and camouflage used by guerrilla fighters of that period from Ethiopia, China and even Rhodesian uniforms. So the argument that I'm making then is that the unexpectedly fleshy, intact and stinky nature of these human remains raise these very urgent questions and uncertainties about the age and therefore the identity of the dead and the manner of their deaths. Now what this meant is that very soon concerns were not only being raised about other dead elsewhere who also needed to be exhumed, but really about whether these Chibondo dead themselves may have included much more recent dead people killed by ZANU-PF violence since independence. So, the uncertain nature of the human materials provoked these sensitive questions. Who were the Chibondo dead? And again, Ambuya Vazarira, her son, said this, probably there are bodies from the liberation struggle there, but maybe there are also bodies from other periods of violence, from the Kukuhundi, maybe the elections of recent years, and even Chiadzwa, 
Chiatua is where they found the diamonds. And in 2008, nine, uh, something like 200 people apparently were killed by, by the army there, and no one quite knows where they were buried. John Makumbe, who's a well-known political scientist who sadly passed away last week, he said this, The truth of the matter is that not all of these skeletons are from atrocities committed by the Smith regime. The Mugabe government may also have used the same burial place to dumb some of its own skeletons. How many victims of the work of the CIO, that's the secret service, if you like, uh, are among the skeletons being exhumed today? And, of course, very quickly, all the, the other Nationalist Party and the Kukuhundi activists started making similar claims. Did the Chibondo remains include victims of 1980 violence against Zapu, Zipra, and later during the Kukuhundi? So, a Zapu uh, spokesman said, We are afraid that Zanip the Zanipiev managed exhumations may be used to cover up evidence of the Kukuhundi atrocities. The MDC, too, got involved. Maybe the Chibondo remains included re much more recent victims of Zanipiev violence. Quote, These bodies look fresh. Zanipiev should come clean on the issue of these exhumations. Those remains are of MDC who were killed by Zanipiev since 2000, and especially the elections of 2008. And of course, the uncertainty about the identity of the dead, provoked, as I'm arguing, by the indeterminate nature of the materials, also raised new questions about the decidedly unforensic nature of the exhumations. Perhaps the crude and decidedly unforensic methods were not just chaotic, unprofessional and disrespectful, but maybe a deliberate attempt to destroy or cover up evidence. In other words, the question was raised, was Chibondo a war grave or a crime scene? And was using divination and spirit possession a deliberate obfuscation of the truth, a way of silencing the bones? And one Zipra activist said this, quote, The archaic methods applied at Chibondo were erroneous and stressed that scientific methods have to be implemented rather than look up to the Andalusi to detect origins of the deceased. And of course, the human rights activist, particularly Shari Eppel, this kind of confirmed her argument. She said, look, what looks like fresh remains may actually be mummified remains. Apparently, I'm not a forensic scientist, but apparently this is not uncommon in mass graves. Bodies packed together, they mummify. So she said, we don't know. But it's not impossible, she said, that these graves contained victims from the 1980s. And we have to think, you know, the violence of the 1980s only happened one or two years after the end of the liberation struggle, right? We're talking about a matter of two or three years. But really, her main argument was that this ambivalence and this uncertainty surrounding the material qualities of the remains really could only be determined by professional forensic anthropologists. That was her main argument. So she said, yes, Zimbabwe needs exhumations and the healing they offer, but they need to be done by professionals. Quote, whether these are mummified issues, tissues, or more recent rotten soft tissues needs an expert to decide. And so she was very much focusing on lobbying to stop the exhumations. And furthermore, she when I spoke to her, she described how many uh, Gugulhundi activists in Matabeliland were coming to her saying, look, let's go and dig up our Gugulhundi graves now, because look, they're doing it over there in Mashonaland. And she very hastily organized a workshop with these people to explain her argument that, no, what they're doing is not what we should be doing. So she appealed in her public statements to all those with long-standing desires for exhumations in their areas, not to follow the bad example of the Fallen Heroes Trust, but rather to lobby for their right to ex expert exhumations undertaken by professionals. 
And indeed, she was part of Zapu made a, an effort to go to court in Bulawayo to get a court order to stop the exhumations. Now, it's interesting because Bulawayo is very far away from where the Chibondo mine was happening. But, and the Bulawayo court gave them that order. And the war veterans kind of ignored it for a week. And then afterwards, Sanupiaf sent in national museums and monuments. So it's kind of they claimed that they stopped it through the court order. But it's not clear to me that they did. Anyway, Sanupiaf's media response to all of this was, look, all of these claims are not in defense of African uh, culture. And indeed, when Changarai, who's the prime minister in the unity government himself, comp- uh, you know, complained fiercely about the exhumations, they accused him of talking cheap politics. So, the uncertain and indeterminate nature of the human materials changed the focus of the controversy surrounding the exhumations. From the crude politicking and disrespectful nature of, the, of what was going on, to these much more sensitive questions about the true identity of the human remains and the real purpose of the unforensic exhumation. And so activists stopped calling for other exhumations and lobbied instead for the prevention of any exhumations without proper forensic expertise. And perhaps this uncertainty explains why, after initially drowning the Fallen Heroes Trust exhumations in publicity, very quickly the government moved in and then rapidly closed them down. And indeed, they increased security at the site, they began choreographing public visits, and eventually they stopped all public visits. And maybe this uncertainty also explains why suddenly questions about how human remains are remade into dead political subjects, how the dead are made present how the past is reconstituted, became of such concern. Why, in other words, the question of whether or not there was professional forensic involvement became such a key part of the debate. Now, what I'm trying to argue in this paper is that these questions ultimately were raised by the indeterminate and yet demanding and excessive potentiality of human materials. And this is what I call, following Chris Pinney, the talk of materiality. So let me give you a bit of theoretical stuff. So in the two earlier papers that I've written on this material, where I've tried to use debates from materiality to explore the politics of the dead in Zimbabwe, the first one, Politics of the Dead, Living Heritage, Bones and Commemoration, was the one I gave here a few years ago. And what I was trying to do here was to explore the ambivalent agency of bones using both gel and latour. So to say that bones do something both as extensions of the consciousness of the dead, as spirit subjects making demands on the living, but also, in a more Luturian sense, as kind of objects or things retorting to and provoking responses from the living. In the second paper, which I called Between Tortured Bodies and Resurfacing Bones, what I did was I used Ingold's critique of materiality and particularly his stress on the properties and flows of materials to argue that violence against living people is linked to disruptions to funerals and burials because both interfere with normal material, social and symbolic processes of containment and transformation through which materials are reconstituted as these uneasy objects, subjects, bodies, persons and through which fleshy bodies become bones, persons become spirits and the living become safely dead. Now, in this third paper I want to push these arguments a little bit further. Because Ingold's focus on materials, indeed, like Bill Brown's work on thing theory, reverts attention to processes of becoming, of reconstitution and stabilisation, indeed what Latour calls purification, through which objects and subjects are constituted. So we can ask, how are bones and human remains sifted from the merged substances of decayed bodies, sand and soil? 
recognized or reconstituted as these uneasy human things, these ambivalent subject objects, through archaeological excavation, forensic exhumation, and indeed divination. How then is archaeology, forensic anthropology, and even divination a kind of remaking of the dead? Now, I'm not the only scholar working on this. There's loads of us. There's a whole zeitgeist of people working on this stuff. One of the uh, Ren Laura Renshaw's work is particularly good, but also Zoe Crossland. And she's, too, as focused, both of them are focused on how anthropological, archaeological, and forensic practice, quote, brings the dead into being through exhumation and analysis. In a paper that I've co-authored with Paolo Filippucci, John Harrison, and various other Bones Collective scholars, we've talked about the process of unearthing. Quote, it is a process of becoming by which traces of past lives are reconstituted and come to assert an ambivalent quality of felt presence, which has the capacity to unsettle the here and now with an indeterminate alterity. And of course, this emphasis on becoming, this remaking on the dead, points to what Laura Renshaw is, Leila Renshaw has called the otherness of human remains. Well, why? Well, it's because if sometimes Ingold has been critiqued for imagining this process of becoming as smooth and unproblematic, and indeed others like Daniel Miller have talked about the dialectics of objectification, then other scholars like Chris Pinney, for example, have stressed that this constant becoming is rife with disjunctures and fractures. This is what he talks about when he says the talk of materiality. In other words, things, materials, stuff, are always both more and less than the objects and subjects they constitute, become, or are made into. Stuff, substances, things, always contain or maintain an excessive potentiality to exceed their constitution, stabilization, or purification into recognizable objects or identifiable subjects. And this excessive potentiality of stuff means that processes of stabilization, of becoming, of reconstitution, are always open-ended, incomplete, uncertain, and ultimately indeterminate. And that's why they're often highly contested. So in my view, the controversies, controversies around Chibondo and the exhumations perfectly illustrate this argument. Or another way of putting it, the argument reveals how the Chibondo controversies were provoked by the human remains themselves. But of course, in that case, how are human remains different from, say, other things and stuff? Because this argument about the talk of materiality and the excessive potentialities of stuff really applies to all stuff. Now, my way out of this, and I'm not entirely convinced it's satisfactory, I think there's more to go there, is one way of thinking about this is to think about the distinction between metaphor and metonym. So in other words, maybe human remains signal presence much more readily than they signal meaning. So this is a quote from this joint paper that we've written. What then appears to make human remains different from and yet exemplary of other things is their resistance to processes of purification and stabilization. In this view, the problem of bones and human materials is that their excessive metonymic qualities defy, perhaps much more than other things, efforts to turn them into meaningful metaphors. As a result, they can be subject to huge and often highly specialised efforts and dramatic over-determinations into particular types of subjects, objects, such as ancestors, victims, heroes or specimens, processes that are often unusually problematic, politicised and contested.
So this is, I think, this helps us to understand how the controversies surrounding Chuchabondo exhumations were provoked by the excessive potentialities of human substances being exhumed, i.e. by their profoundly evocative and effective, yet unstable, uncertain and ultimately indeterminate materialities. And interestingly, this also explains why the objects and artefacts found with them, the clothes, the shoes, the uniforms, took on such importance for both sides of the debate. Why? Because they offered much more stability of meaning. And it helps us to explain why so many of the debates <coughs> turned on the manner of the exhumations, especially, like I've said, between forensic and so-called divinatory approaches, even as everyone on all sides agreed that exhumation and reburial can be cathartic and healing. In fact, I would argue that the talk of materiality approach would suggest that neither divination nor forensics are necessarily very good at remaking the dead, i.e. identifying the dead, in the absence of extensive contextual work to make them meaningful. So we're thinking here about the role of the archaeological context when you're digging up a grave site, or even think of DNA analysis. You know, you can take my DNA, it will tell you nothing unless you have some context within which to put it. And I wonder whether the same could be true of divination spirit possession. And again, that's another opening I still need to explore. Therefore, the excessive potentiality of human materials makes remaking the dead, however you approach it, a profoundly uncertain and indeterminate process, and therefore often unusually problematic, politicised and contested. And I would argue, I mean, I've only loosely watched the stuff going on with Richard III, but I suspect the same is true there. The media likes to say this is a definite. I imagine if you spoke to the specialists, they would be much less sure. They would open up the uncertainties much more. But there's one last thing that I want to discuss, which is how might the uncertainties provoked by the Chibondo exhumations have been politically useful? Now, if politics is sometimes assumed to be about the contested work of determination and the elimination of doubt and uncertainty, then perhaps uncertainty can also be part and parcel of a performative stylistics of power. Now, uncertainty is very trendy in anthropology at the moment, and I like to think of it as the new ambiguity. Um, often I find the references to uncertainty in some kind of stuff a little bit too vague. I'm trying to use it in a very specific way here. And what I would like to do, and this is really takes me back to the larger book project where I'm situating this chapter, is can we link the uncertainties of materials and stuff to the productive uncertainties that often surround rumours, gossip and political satire? And I'm thinking here particularly of Achillean Bembe's work, where he's talked about cartoons that satirise Cameroonian elites actually reinforce their presence. So, perhaps the rumours and controversies that surround the Chibondo exhumations, provoked, as I've argued, by the indeterminate nature of the materials, both at one level challenged Zanopf's crude efforts to remake the dead into their heroes, but at the same time also served Zanopf's interest by reminding everyone of its profound capacity for violence. In other words, perhaps, like rumours and satire, um, the uncertainties of bodies, bones and human remains not only provokes a complexity of meanings but can have duplicious political effects. Now, if political authority always depends on the combination of legitimacy and sovereignty, then perhaps the uncertainties provoked by the exhumed remains allowed Zanopiev, for a time, to have it both ways. They could use the exhumations to celebrate their heroes and inflate their own anti-colonialist rhetoric and legitimacy. 
and they could remind everyone of their own capacity for violence. And we have to think about how this was going on exactly in the context of new debates about new elections. And also, in a sense, this offers an explanation for the grotesque politicking, the bus tours, the school visits, the ZBC jingles, and indeed the decidedly unforensic nature of the exhumations. In other words, this gross politicking was not just about reinforcing Zanopiev's anti-colonialist legitimacy, its patriotic history, if you like. It was also a performative exercise in demonstrating, again, that, as Mbembe has put it, the ultimate expression of sovereignty resides in the power to exercise control over mortality, what he calls necropolitics. And indeed, this wasn't unnoticed at the time. So, one of the NBC spokespeople said this, those villagers, he's referring to the villagers who were being bussed into the mine to see what was going on, those villagers know that many of those remains are of MDC activists, but they are too scared to say it. That's why Zanopiev is now instilling fear by showing them those remains. This shows we are again not going to have free and fair elections. In other words, what I'm arguing is that maybe some people in Zanopiev recognise the political purchase or usefulness of the indeterminate nature of the human remains. Now, an important point here is that I don't think my argument relies on a kind of Machiavellian political intention. Right? These political effects can work with regardless of any design. And yet, at the same time, this kind of performative politics of uncertainty maybe fits an emerging pattern that circulates around the political efficacy of rumours. And I'm thinking here particularly of Operation Murambachino, which was this dreadful operation of urban clearances in 2005, when, you know, in the space of two weeks, hundreds of thousands of people were made homeless when the government decided to clear the shanty towns and the townships. Now, I was there when that was happening, and in a very different piece of work, uh, I've talked about what struck me as most interesting about those events, which was the perfora of rumours that emerged. Why is the government doing this? Why are they destroying people's houses? And I've written a whole article about this to argue in a very Mbembe-esque kind of way to say that actually the rumours were part of the political effects of what was going on. So that's one example of where this kind of, there is a political thing going on with rumours already. Another example, and this is the focus of a chapter I haven't written yet, but are one I'd like to write, are the rumours that often circulate around the unusually frequent accidental deaths, or maybe murders, of leading politicians. And there is a very long history of this in Zimbabwe. And this goes all the way back to the assassination of Herbert Chitepo, which remains unresolved, to the accidental death in a fire of a very senior ZNPF figure, Solomon Mujul, in fact, in August that year. And perhaps, you know, these rumours too, although the rumours, you know, that wasn't an accident, Zanopiev killed him, which are very prolific, although ostensibly they challenge Zanopiev's legitimacy, maybe they also rarefy the sense of its capacity and power, its sovereignty and necropolitics. And that's the chapter I, I still need to write. However, there is, at the end of the day, a limit to this argument, because this kind of uncertainty works both ways. The possibility always remains that such uncertainty will subvert that other aspect of political authority, legitimacy. And again, in August 2011, the remains were reburied. And as rumour has it, the mine was sealed. The issue did disappear from the news. In fact, what happened is they, there was a, the last real news reference to this was, you know, National Museums is building, has reburied the remains. They're going to build a shrine there. That's it. 
and then all the news coverage just stops. So ultimately, the uncertainties, perhaps, of the identity of the dead and the manner of their deaths, provoked, as I've been arguing at length, by the materials themselves, were not sustainable or easily containable. And indeed, I asked people in Harare and elsewhere in Zimbabwe about this in December 2011. And many people said, look, what happened is that ZANU-PF became alarmed that things at Chibondo got out of hand. The possibility that the remains included victims of ZANU-PF violence were probably, perhaps, just too threatening to the legitimacy of its patriotic history project. They outweighed any benefits it may have accrued from the grotesque displays of its ability to exercise control over mortality. So in the end, perhaps, a kind of biopolitics outweighed a kind of necropolitics. Or, as, one, as Sherry Apple put it, ZANU-PF, their dead scare them. In the end, then, the uncertainties provoked by the talk of materiality, the excessive potentiality of human remains, exceeded or overwhelmed its own political utility. Now, I could stop there, or I could read you my conclusion. How are we doing for time? Shall I just read the conclusion? Then you get a properly read bit rather than me sort of speaking from the notes. So, my conclusion. In 2004, Judith Butler wrote that the question that preoccupies me in the light of recent global violence is who counts as human? Whose lives count as lives? And finally, what makes for a grievable life? In Zimbabwe, these are familiar questions which demand answers that stretch beyond conventional analyses of how post-colonial commemoration across Africa and elsewhere is necessarily inflected with the politics of recognition, visibility and the dynamics of inclusion and exclusion. Events at Chibondo illustrate how what Pinney calls the alterity of an enfleshed world is fundamentally implicated in the disjunctures and fractures of all human becomings and unbecomings, in which the politics of commemoration of what makes for a grievable life are but one dimension. The grisly exhumations at Chibondo in 2011 illustrate how the excessive potentiality of human substances demands yet defies any easy reading, metaphorization, stabilization, and therefore animates, affords and makes possible the kinds of politics of commemoration that Butler refers to. It was, after all, the fleshy, leaky, stinking, maybe decomposing or otherwise mummified qualities of the many remains being disinterred and reassembled from the Mount Darwin mine, which provoked much of the intense debate and criticism the exhumations became enveloped in. Questions about the performative stylistics of power, the politics of uncertainty, and contestations over different techniques of determination of remaking the dead, turn in part on these indeterminate material properties and transformations. And it is the excessive qualities of this human stuff, demanding yet defying easy determination or stabilization into meaning, which both enabled and exceeded Zanupiev politicking around the dead and the multiple diverse responses that were provoked by it. Thanks.